So here we go in five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Radio Flash, Armada's military electromagnetic spectrum podcast with your host Tom Withington at the controls. Now keen-eyed readers of Armada's military communications webpage may remember an article that we ran in April that looked at tropospheric radio. As the name suggests, tropospheric techniques exploit the troposphere, which is a layer of the atmosphere up to 43,000 feet above the Earth's surface. When aimed at an angle towards the troposphere, some radio signals can jump over the horizon and can reach distances of up to 500 kilometers. Tropospheric communications are proving attractive for long-range military communications, joining their high-frequency and satellite communications brethren. But why is tropospheric radio in vogue, and what can it do that other forms of communications cannot? Well, to answer these questions and other points, we're joined today by Daniel Gizinski, Comtech Telecommunications Chief Strategy Officer, and he joins us today from California. Daniel, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning, and uh, thanks for having me on. So briefly talk us through how tropospheric radio works. So great question. Uh, troposcatter is really interesting. And I think in a lot of cases for folks that are familiar with either high frequency radio or satellite, tropo feels a little bit counterintuitive. What uh, troposcatter relies on is pointing a dish and sending a signal out over the horizon um, where it's reflected off the uh, upper layers of the atmosphere, the troposphere. The, the challenge to troposcatter is only about a trillionth of that signal energy is radiated back down to the Earth off of um, that upper layer of the atmosphere. And so you're trying to collect a, a very weak signal and reassemble it on the other end. In a lot of cases for a modern troposcatter system, we're working to consolidate various bouncing and reflecting uh, components of that signal. So sections that bounce off of a mountain range, off of the upper atmosphere, off of trees, buildings, etc., and then reassemble that back into something that looks like the signal that was originally transmitted. So our recent article on uh, tropospheric communications looked at the British Army's adoption of this technology. But just to clarify, from what I understand, tropospheric radio's actually been around for a while. Yeah, so, so troposcatter was something that was pioneered really during the 1950s as you know, capability developed during and to support World War II. There, there was a lot that was done that they relied on very large antennas, you know, very high power amplifiers. And there was a lot of signal processing equipment required to reassemble the signal on the other end. It was simply difficult to, to field in a small form factor and in a practically deployable um, capability. We saw progression in troposcatter throughout the years. Um, the 1980s saw quite a bit of progress and we have um, systems like the uh, U.S. Marine Corps Track 170, the TRC-170 um, system that was fielded pretty broadly throughout the, the late 80s and into the 90s um, that, that represented a, a huge reduction in size, form factor, uh, relative deployability. And that, that's a trailer-mounted system that still has a fairly large aperture dish, still requires quite a bit of support. In the last few years, what we've seen is with uh, modern communication techniques, uh, modern processing capabilities, we're able to bundle a lot of that historical capability that required huge amounts of infrastructure uh, into much smaller form factors. 
Um, so I think you're starting to see a little bit of a resurgence in interest as new capabilities allow for that to be brought into a much um, smaller package. It's funny you mentioned those legacy systems because in my research, I saw some amazing photographs of these very large sort of concrete structures that were used for NATO tropospheric communication systems. They're very large, unwieldy, fixed systems. And I, I wondered if that um, complexity, let's call it, was part of the reason perhaps for it tropospheric seeming to sort of fall out of favor a little bit before this renaissance that you've talked about. So I think there's a there's definitely a couple of things that are true. And, you know, the first is, you know, the size and the infrastructure requirements definitely limited the, the amount of use that uh, Tropos Scatter was relevant to. Um, you know, I think in a lot of cases, a modern command post um, operates under the assumption that they have to be able to set up and relocate relatively quickly. And those legacy Tropos Scatter systems were really challenged. You're, you're, you're putting something there that's you know big, permanent. It requires a lot of man hours to get it in, up and running, and then take down after the fact. Um, and so I, I, de I definitely think there's a degree of that. The other thing that's true is I think for a long time, systems like the Track 170 have been out uh, reliably being used. They've gotten you know kind of quiet upgrade programs over the years. But in a lot of cases, there's very little buzz around a system that's working well. Um, and so it's providing a... You know, key capability, it's working effectively. Um, in some cases, it might provide against a peer or a near-peer adversary a competitive advantage. And so it's not necessarily something that you feel the need to go uh, go out and trumpet and bring a lot of attention to. You have a program that programs executing well, um, the system's delivering on what's required. Inevitably, you know, as time moves forward um, and you're able to build these systems that potentially support multiple frequency bands, they support, you know, a little bit of frequency agility, um, they support you know, multiple use cases where we've actually delivered systems that support both SATCOM and TropoScatter. Um, and so they're switchable between those two. Um, that definitely generates a little bit more excitement. That's a new capability. It's a needle mover um, for the end user that's uh, generated a little bit more attention. From your perspective, what can tropospheric comms do that perhaps things like HF uh, and SATCOM cannot do? Or, or what can it do better, let's say? Yeah, so so I, I view Troposcatter in a lot of ways as a complement to both of those technologies, and there, there's a little bit of overlap, I think, on both ends. You know, where, where Troposcatter excels relative to high-frequency radio really is the ability to get beyond kind of that visual horizon. And so if you've got you know clear space that gives you about 40 miles of range uh, with an HF radio, in, in most cases, especially in a, a modern warfighting environment, you've got obstructions, and that that could be trees, that could be buildings, um, you know, that could be a mountain range, and what Troposcatter provides is the ability to shoot up around through um, all of those obstructions. And so uh, in, in a lot of cases, HF, you, you'll have in and out connectivity, you'll have um, somewhat unreliable comms, especially if you're pushing the limits of distance. And then you're also limited to that visual horizon. Troposcatter provides a little bit more um, of a you know, set and forget communications capability where you don't have to worry about uh, things in the way. Uh, relative to SATCOM, there's there's a couple of things. Obviously, you don't have kind of that global reach that SATCOM provides. Um, you might be limited to something in the 70 mile to maybe as high as four or 500 miles with a fairly large troposcatter system. So you don't have that same level of reach back uh, where you can shoot from you know Europe back to America. But if you want to go to another operating base two or 300 miles away, troposcatter is, you know, I think, a really good fit for that. Um, I also view it as kind of a key enabler for extending SATCOM, where um, an operational unit that's relying on SATCOM doesn't need to have a SATCOM terminal 
at every single location. They can have a single SATCOM terminal and then have you know, lower cost, lower operating um, setup time, trouble scatter terminal that extends that, that SATCOM package. As an add-on to that, what are we typically looking at in terms of um, bandwidth and megabits per second, kilobits per second, that kind of thing with um, Tropper Scatter? Is it is it a move, movable feast, or do we have some sort of ballpark figures that we can work with with that? Yeah, so so good question, and you know I think it it, it certainly does vary quite a bit depending on you know the system, the link, dish size, etc. Um, but we we see you know regularly speeds of seventy to eighty megabits per second, even on fairly challenging links. And we've done multiple demonstrations for customers that show data rates well over 100 megabits per second. In a lot of cases, the mission data requirements that you know Tropo Scatter is being asked to support are quite a bit lower than that today, based on those historical system limitations. So what we're able to demonstrate is bringing additional traffic on that. That's you know quite a few full motion video streams, um, other mission data that can be passed over a link that size. One of the things that I was really excited about, we did a uh, demonstration event this week, um, earlier this week out in Tampa, Florida where we showed um, TropoScatter both from a fixed site to a fixed site, as well as to TropoScatter on the move. And what we were able to show is on a boat going up to 40 knots, we were still showing data rates of 50 to 60 megabits per second consistently over three days worth of uh, demonstration. So even with a with a moving target, um, you're still seeing uh, you know, tens of megabits per second pretty consistently. One of the applications I can um, certainly see for Tropospheric, which I'm, I'm sure it's being used in and uh, along with other applications as well, is in terms of sort of theatre level operational comms between um, deployed headquarters. If you're going up from battalion to division, that kind of thing and further because of the ranges that are involved and because of those bandwidths. Yeah, and I, I, I think you're absolutely right there. That's absolutely you know one of the things that we're seeing, and it's been a core part of why we've been trying to develop these on-the-move capabilities is keeping that in sync even when, you know, kind of those disparate groups are uh, potentially moving relative to each other is uh, absolutely critical, right? You know, in a modern warfighting environment, if you're not moving, you're losing. Um, and so we're, we're very mindful of kind of listening to that customer demand uh, and delivering, you know, a tropo scatter system where, you think about it 20, 30 years ago as a fixed infrastructure that uh, took time to set up. We've evolved into, hey, now you're able to get a link up and running in five minutes or eight minutes to the link never goes down, even when you know one or both parties is moving. Obviously, Troposcat has still got um, significant mileage left, um, and I still expect it to be in demand significantly in the future. How do you expect the technology to develop over the coming years? Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting thing to branch into. And definitely from my perspective, you know, we're really excited about the adoption of these tropo scatter systems, these next generation systems from uh, US, from NATO partners, and from other coalition partners. Um, I think it's a key part of enabling interoperability across those disparate groups. That's always been a challenge where you have these disparate stovepipe solutions that we're trying to pull together. Um, I view tropo scatter as a really appropriate mechanism to allow. Uh, cross-coalition forces to share information with something that they're using that's a common interoperable system. We're also looking at you know some some non-DOD, uh, non-MOD type applications for it, uh, providing disaster recovery capabilities. We, we've worked through a couple of vignettes specifically related to you know post hurricane, post uh, you know other major disaster, setting up a tropo scatter system relatively quickly, or in some cases even having it up and running permanently. Um, in you know core you know police department fire department uh, emergency response coordination environments um, so that when the comms infrastructure goes down um, there's already a network up and running one of the 
core benefits to Tropo Scatter that I find really interesting is it performs well in bad weather. So in situations like wind, rain, snow, where you know a satellite link might take a 500x or 700x uh, performance hit, Tropo Scatter actually increases um, the throughput because you're getting more of the signal reflected. So that additional scattering uh, provides a key benefit. And so we're we're really excited about you know that potential use case as a complement where one link goes down, the other link goes up. Uh, to complement it, and you keep that end-to-end throughput at the same level. Well, Daniel, I think we've all learned a lot about this uh, very interesting and probably quite under-discussed means of communication and certainly look forward to hearing more about some of those developments you've just been talking about in the future. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. You can find out more about Comtech's tropospheric communications expertise at their website, which is comtech.com. And don't forget, there's more military electromagnetic news and analysis at armadainternational.com. That's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for listening.